The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. Whenever we hear the, the radical claims of salvation by grace, we are immediately uh, and sometimes automatically prompted to ask, if we're free from the law, does that mean we don't have to obey the law of God? What's the purpose of the law of God. If I'm always saved only by Christ's performance and not my own performance, why then should we strive to obey the word of God? Do I have any obligation at all to keep God's law and why? And uh, there's no more practical question, I believe, than that of the relationship of a Christian and the law of God. How does this work in the Christian life? What is the purpose of the law now that we are believers uh, our other questions about how to live, how, how should I treat my spouse, uh, how, what should I spend my money on, what corners can I cut my job, I mean, wh- how do I live my life out now that I'm a believer, if I'm not living to be saved, if I'm not living to get uh, acceptance from God or to be born again through my works, what is then the purpose of works, what is then the purpose of obedience to the law? And in the flow of his letter here to the Galatians, Paul's established that we're saved, justified, and redeemed only by faith in Christ, and not through any righteousness of our own. And so he reaches the point to where I think that we get to, where the question just is asked naturally, well then what's the point of the law? And so he addresses that issue uh, here in this uh, passage. And today we're going to look at really that this is a promised gospel A gospel of promise, not a gospel of law or a gospel of works. And so Paul, in verse number 15, wants to underline first what the law does not do. So he takes an example from everyday life. He points out that human contracts are binding and difficult or impossible to void, and no one can set aside or add to human covenant uh, than that has been established. So, So it is in this case, verse 15, he's saying, Hey, listen, this is the covenant, this is a word, this is a legal will of God. It's a good example, because as we look at a will, it's a duly and legally made uh, 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 contract, and it's binding, and nothing changes that. So what in the world is now the purpose? Paul knows that some might uh, see that Moses' law, he says here in the passage, was introduced 430 years after God's promise to Abraham. So what came first? The promise of the law. The promise came first. Verse 17. And so when the law comes onto the scene 430 years after God makes this promise to Abraham, this covenant to Abraham that he's going to redeem, he's going to make a people to himself, uh, he's going to, uh, through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so some people might come to that, that law in the Old Testament and conclude, well, this changes things. If we're going to get the blessings of Abraham, we need to stop and obey the law of Moses in order to be uh, children of Moses, in order to be children of God. And Paul shows that this is a false conclusion. He says the law doesn't set aside the covenant that was previously established by God. It doesn't do away, verse 17, with the promise of God. Verse 15, it doesn't disannul Uh, what God has promised to us. And this is a powerful argument. If the law came as a way of salvation, then it means that God changed his mind. And how many know that God didn't change his mind? 
God promised to redeem us, God promised to save us, and He promised to do that through His own Son, the sacrifice of the Anointed One, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who's going to come into the world, and He was going to save us, He was going to rescue us. And this is worth reflecting on. For a promise to bring a result, it needs only to be believed. But for a law to bring a result, it has to be obeyed. For a promise to bring a result, it needs only to be believed, but for a law to bring a result, it has to be obeyed. And that's, that's an important point, because how many of us have obeyed the law? None of us. So how could we be children of God if we haven't obeyed the law? If the law is a means to coming into the family of Abraham, or therefore the family of God, if the law is a means to make us children of God, and in keeping the law, going back to the Old Testament law, and, and keeping these stringent laws... If that is a means to save us, then none of us can be saved. It's something that condemns all of us because the law only points to a fact that we couldn't keep it. A gift promise needs only to be believed to be received, but a law wage must be obeyed to be received. None of us could keep the law, and so none of us could be saved by the law. None of us have kept the law And so none of us can be redeemed or made righteous through the law. As the Bible declares, we're all sinners and we fall short of the glory of God, that none of us are righteous, not a single one of us. And so he points back to this for those people who were arguing for work salvation, people who were presenting to this Galatian church that they could be saved through the law. They would go back to the Old Testament and say, yeah, but God, he he introduced this law. And so they missed the purpose of the law. They missed the point of the law. And so what is the purpose or the point of the law? That's the first thing that we're going to look at uh, today, the purpose of the law. What is the purpose of the law? And I, let me just say this in, in introduction. It's common for believers to begin their Christian lives by looking beyond themselves at Christ clearly crucified, relying on God's promise that Christ has taken our curse and given us His blessing. But as we go on, it's tempting And it's easy to look within ourselves at our own human effort, resting in our own performance to give us our sense of acceptability before God. And doing this, I would tell tell you this morning, doing this makes us radically insecure because it cuts away at our assurance. It prompts us to two things. Either we're left to despair because we cannot keep the law of God or left to pride believing that we have kept the law of God. We're left to to one of two ends, which are both destructive in our lives. We're left to despair, knowing that we haven't kept and cannot keep the law of God, and so now we're left hopeless, because now we're left with this system that we can never achieve. Uh, How many have ever been in a relationship, and maybe this is, you you had a bad relationship, or you had a a bad parent-child relationship, where you could never do enough to be loved or accepted? You could never do enough to feel love to feel acceptance, nothing you did was ever good enough. And what did that leave you? In depression, in despair, without the feeling of ever knowing that you could be rescued from that that feeling because you could never do enough for that person to love you or accept you. And that's what we're left in if we try to achieve salvation or we try to achieve a relationship with God through our works. We're left in despair knowing in our heart of hearts that we have not kept the law perfectly, 
that the only way that we can look like we've kept the law perfectly is by hiding a lot of things in our lives. How many have ever been that way? In, in those relationships, you're, you're forced to hide who you really are. You're forced to hide the, the bad thoughts you have, the bad uh, uh, desires that you have. You're forced to push them underground and cover them up with some good works and some good performances on the outside and hopefully people will look only at the good things you do, they'll ignore the things that they can't see, kind of the hidden things that are in your life and it forces you in that position and you live this unhealthy life knowing that you can't achieve what needs to be achieved in order for you to be perfect, in order for you to be accepted uh, through this process. And I think everybody that's in religion understands that because you're in this system where you can't ever hit the goal. You can't ever hit the mark. And so you ask somebody that's religious, are you going to heaven? And they'll say this, I'm not sure. I don't know. I hope that when I get to the end of my life, I've done enough good things in order for God to accept me. I hope I don't mess it up. I hope along the way, you know, I don't fall or fail. I know that in me, there's things that desires in me. I know I've made mistakes along the way. Hopefully, I've done enough good to cover up for that bad. And so it pushes us into despair, or it makes us like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and it fills us with pride because we actually believe that we kept the law or we've kept it enough for God to accept us. And so we're left to our pride. How many have found out that pride is just as destructive as despair. Pride is just as destructive, if not more destructive, than despair. Because it pushes us into a position where we believe something about ourselves that just isn't true. That's what pride does. It makes us believe uh, or think more highly of ourselves than we should think. It's an inaccurate calculation of ourselves of how we're living our lives. It's when Jesus presented the law to the rich young ruler and he said, all of this have I kept from my youth. And Jesus, he looked at him, he said, you can't even receive what I have to offer you because you don't even know that you need it. And that's where some people, you, do, you present the, the law of God to them, the law of God tells them that they've fallen short, that they've broken God's law, and they say, no, 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 I've kept the law of God. I'm not a liar, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a murderer. You know, I'm somebody that's done really bad things. You know, there's some things in my life. I'm, I'm like everybody else who's done some bad things, but God's not really focused on those uh, little things that I've done in my life. And so I, I'm acceptable. And so we, we base our acceptability to God based on our social constructs and how we accept each other socially. And so it's common for us as believers to do that in our Christian life. We begin with faith completely in Christ for our salvation, but then we continue in our Christian life thinking that it's through law-keeping that, God is, uh, that we're pleased, uh, by pleasing God or that we're accepted by God through our ability to keep the law. And so then what is the purpose of the law? Well, go to verse 19 and look at it with me. Wherefore then serveth the law? Or what is the purpose of the law? Why was it given? It was added or it was given... Because of what? Transgressions. What is that? Sin. It was given because of sin. It was given because of transgressions. It was given to show us our sinfulness. It was added because of transgressions. Notice, until Christ came. The law didn't come to tell us about salvation. The law came to tell us about sin. The law didn't come to, to, to uh, tell us a way to become righteous. The law came to show us that we were unrighteous and therefore needed a Savior. And its main purpose is to show us our problem. 
that we are lawbreakers and to prove to us that we cannot be the solution. So because we broke the law, we cannot be the solution to that. We are, we are not the ones that can unbreak the law or make the law right or fulfill the law. And to prove to us that we cannot be the solution since we are unable to be perfect law keepers. How many figure that out in your life? You are unable, you're unable, you're incapable of being a perfect law keeper. The rest of verse 19 and verse 20 is kind of cryptic. Some commentators think Paul is saying that God spoke the law to the people through a mediator, namely Moses but that he spoke the promise directly to Abraham. But then that's not what necessarily directly the Bible is saying here. No one is sure what Paul means or how this fits into an argument. But if you look at the thrust of Paul's argument, and I believe the other supporting points are clear, it, it's pointing us to the fact that God has sent us now, I believe, a mediator through Jesus Christ who mediated the law for us. That there's now, the Bible tells us in Hebrews, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. The ones that mediated the law for us, humanly speaking, were unable to do it perfectly themselves. In other words, I'm preaching the word of God to you, but I'm unable to keep the law perfectly myself. I, I'm sharing with you what the Bible says, but understanding while I'm sharing it with you that I'm not able to perfectly do what the Bible says, just like you're not able to perfectly do what the Bible says. And I'm not pointing you to me, nor was God pointing us to Moses or to Abraham as the mediator, but rather God is pointing us through the law to Jesus Christ, the one mediator who is able to mediate uh, our relationship with God and the one alone who can do that. And so... As we look at the purpose of the law, this is the purpose of the law. It shows us that we do not just fall short of God's will, requiring some extra effort to do better, but that we are completely under sin's power and we require a rescue. So it shows us that we do not just fall short of God's will. Some people, they look at the, the verses for all of sins fall short. So we've fallen short, so we need to do some extra effort in order to make things right. We can bridge that gap by doing more. We can pull ourselves up and we can do better and we can try harder, kind of like we do in the, during the, the new year with our New Year's resolutions. You know, I did bad last year. I fell short of my goals. This year I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet my goals. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit my goals. I'm going to do all that I can and so I can make it through my own effort. And the law shows us that that's just not true, that there is no effort that we can make, that there is no work that we can do we are completely under sin's power and we require a rescue that can only come from somebody who's perfect. It only can come through someone that's perfect, someone who keeps the law. The law has the power to show us that we're not righteous, but it cannot give us the power to be righteous. So the law has the power to show us that we are not righteous, but it cannot give us the power to be righteous. I like this illustration the mirror shows you your flaws, but the mirror does not remove your flaws. The mirror shows you your flaws, but nobody ever takes the mirror off the wall and washes their face. Nobody ever takes the mirror off the wall and, and, and makes their complexion look better through the mirror. The mirror is meant to show you what you are, who you are, an accurate reflection of who you are, but the mirror has no power to correct the imperfections. The mirror has no power to make you what you want to look like. 
How many of you, you've ever seen one of those funny mirrors, and you go and you look at those mirrors, and now we have funny mirrors on our phones that we take selfies with, and then we have these filters that remove all of the, you know, whatever we don't like about ourselves, and they'll even put things on our face that we like, and they can make us look thinner, and they can make us look, you know, it's all about angles and filters and all, and that's the way we like to look at ourselves. How many have ever seen a picture and said, that's not what I look like? It is. It's just not what you think you look like. Well, it was just at a bad angle. Well, it's still an angle that is you. You know, maybe that's the way children view you. God help the children. They all view us from down here, right? This is a bad angle uh, to be taking a picture. Notice this is the way kids see us. This is the way we see us, right? We, we like to take ourselves or look at ourselves through filters and through angles that make us look as if in our minds what we believe ourselves to be. Religion helps us to view ourselves through a filter that's inaccurate. Religion helps us to kind of paint away the imperfections that the mirror shows us. It kind of covers up, but it never removes. Uh, Ladies know better than men, obviously, what cover-up is. And it's meant to cover up. Ladies, men have... It's so easy, don't we? I mean, we just, we're allowed to just kind of like look how we look, and everybody just accepts the ugly that we are. And then, you know, ladies are expected to cover up every imperfection and, you know, look through a certain, be looked at through a certain lens. And, you know, we, we, we understand that we can cover up things that are imperfections. But we never really can get a perfect picture that we'd like to see. How many, sometimes the mirror is not your friend? But how many, every time you get up in the morning, or at least before you go into social places, you at least look in the mirror? By the way, thank you for looking today before you came out. You know, we use the mirror to try to make alterations to ourselves, to try to get that reflection to look. But at the end of the day, don't we just, at the end of all of our, how, no matter how long we spent in front of the mirror, at the end we just go, that's as good as it's going to get, and we kind of walk away. You know, we, we never go, Perfect. And if you do, it's kind of, it would be a funny thing to watch. But, you know, you know we, we never kind of come away from the mirror thinking, we just kind of talk ourselves into, I'm good enough now to be seen. And, and that's what religion kind of does for us. It kind of covers up things for us, but it never gets that picture. What does the Bible do? The Bible talks about it being a perfect law or a perfect law of liberty. It, it's, it's something we look into like a mirror. And it shows us who we are, but it cannot, the law can't wash our sins away. It cannot remove the imperfections that are showing us. And by the way, how many have ever read the Bible and found out who you really were? I mean, when I read the Bible, it doesn't tell me what I want to hear. It tells me who I really am. Sometimes we like to skim through the Bible so that we can pick, you know, kind of select verses that make us feel good. And some preachers even do that. They'll just kind of share verses that are encouraging. But how many know when you read the Bible systematically and in context, ultimately it's all saying the same thing, that we're really ugly inside, in our hearts, that we need to be cleansed. And there's no way that we can do that in ourselves. Now, before you get really depressed over this, let me give you some good news and some hope. Because while the law has the power to show us that we're not righteous, and it cannot give us the power to be righteous, 
what the law ultimately does is the law brings us to that right place. It brings us to that place. It points us to the right place. And that's what I want to look at secondly this morning, the pointing of the law. Where does the law point? It shows me first myself honestly. As I read the the book of the law, as I read the Word of God, it shows me who I am. And Paul uses two metaphors to kind of characterize the way the law works in our lives. First, he says the law is a guard. Look at verse number 23. He says, but before faith came, we were kept. We were kept. Look at that word, kept. We were kept under the law. We were shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. So what is he saying to us? Well, first, the law is a guard. The law is a guard. Before the faith came, we were held, what is he saying literally? We were held prisoners by the law. We were shut up. We were locked up until faith should be revealed. He's saying we're locked up. We're protected by a prison guard, and the law is that prison guard. The law is holding us. The law is is locking us up. It's shutting us up. It's holding us hostage as a prisoner. And it's pointing to something. That there must be a price paid for our sin. When you break the law, right? Do the crime. What was it? Uh, Commit the crime. Do the time, right? So it's saying to us, there's a consequence for what we do. How many have learned that in life? that there are consequences to our actions. I mean, science teaches us with every action there's an equal opposite reaction. That would be a consequence. But life teaches us that too, that when we do things, there are consequences to our actions, that we can choose what we want to do with our lives, but we cannot choose the consequences of our actions. We can choose what we want to do, but we cannot choose what happens as a result of what we do. Consequences come. How many have had some bad consequences in your life? How many, you're now a parent and you're trying to teach your children not to repeat some of your mistakes so that they don't have to have similar consequences? Some Some of us understand that the consequences don't always come right away. You know, the Bible talks about the pleasure of sin for a season. You know why we sin? Because it's pleasurable. This idea that sin is something that's dirty and nobody likes to do it is all wrong. We really enjoy sin. It's pleasurable to us. The reason why uh, McDonald's has full lines is because their food tastes good, okay? Now, there's consequences to eating it. Are you with me? But that doesn't remove the fact that it tastes really good. Some of you said, why'd you have to bring that up now? While we're, I just started my New Year's resolution. I'm five days in. You said McDonald's in the sermon. Sorry. You said it twice. I'm sorry. I won't say it anymore. We get tempted. The Bible says because we're drawn away of our own lust and we're enticed. Why are we enticed? Because we're enticed by things that we want to do. We desire to do things. I mean, pretending like we don't desire to do wrong is really unnatural. It really is. It's really kind of robotic, and it's what religion kind of does. Religion says, pretend like you don't like to sin. That's not what God asks us to do. God asks us to admit that we want to sin. God asks us to agree with Him that we find sin attractive, 
and that we have sinned. I mean, ultimately, that's the, that's the road to rescue. That's the road to success. You're going to be locked up by your sin, by the law, as long as you're in lockup saying, I'm innocent. You know, some people, they're in prison for things that they did, but everybody in prison's innocent. I'm, I'm, you know, I get wrongfully accused. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve this. Con- That's us, isn't it? When, when something bad happens to us, we go, I don't deserve this. Isn't it amazing that we even do that, even sometimes as believers? Bad things happen to us, and we go, I don't deserve this. Yes, yes, we do. You know what we deserve? Eternal separation from God. We deserve very bad things to happen to us. That is what we deserve. It's God's mercy that we experience goodness. It's God's mercy that we're not consumed. It's God's mercy that we have joy, that we have peace, that we experience abundance in life. But we get to this point sometimes where we actually feel entitled to goodness. We feel entitled to comfort. We feel entitled to success. We believe ourselves to be deserved of those things on the basis of our performance. We think, I've done enough good. Why should not good? Listen, God is not karma. God is not karma. Sending out good feelings does not mean good feelings come back. How many have learned that in life? You send out all the good feelings that you want. It doesn't mean people are going to treat you right. You can, you can be kind to people. It doesn't mean people will be kind to you. You can love people, and it doesn't mean people will love you. Have you ever loved somebody that didn't love you back? Have you been kind to someone that wasn't kind back to you? If, you? if you're living your life on the basis of what I give is what I'm going to get, you're going to be disappointed greatly in life. You think about what the gospel teaches us. What does it point to? Well, first, the law is a guard, but second, the law is a tutor. It's a tutor. He says here the law is a schoolmaster. It's a supervisor under whose supervision that we live. The law was put in charge, look at verse 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to what? To bring us unto Christ. How many in school you like the analogy of being under a schoolmaster? I think after we mature and grow, we appreciate our schoolmasters. When we mature and grow, we actually begin to appreciate the parental instruction that we got, maybe in the moments, we didn't really appreciate it. Uh, If you had parents that kind of guarded you and protected you, probably while you were being protected, you might even fought against it. You might have even not wanted it. But as you mature and grow, what do you learn? I'm thankful that my parents protected me from. I'm thankful that, and some of us that didn't have parents that protected us from, we go, I wish my parents had protected me from. And we learn now as parents that we need to protect our children from things that they won't protect themselves from. How many have found that children will run into disaster and believe that it's fun? They'll hurt themselves and not even know that they're doing it. They'll run headlong into things believing that they're going to have good results, but we know that they're not. And so we have to what? We have to shield them. We have to guide them from it. They're in essence never getting beyond that chasing that ball out into the street running after what they want, but not understanding they're running into danger to do it. Not, not, and, and, and sometimes that's what we understand the Bible's teaching us that the law did for us. What did the law? It was like a schoolmaster. It was a supervisor in our lives. In the homes of Paul's day, 
uh, there's tutors or guardians who, who were usually slaves who supervised the children on the parents' behalf. And we're going to see that metaphor again in chapter number 4. But in both cases, the guard and the tutor remove freedom. In both cases, the relationship with the law is not intimate, nor is it personal. It's based on rewards and, in punish, and punishments, and in both cases, we're treated as children or worse. And so Paul describes all non-gospel-based religion as being characterized by a sense of bondage, an impersonal relationship with God motivated by desire for rewards and a fear of punishment, and anxiety about your standing with God. Did you get that? This is what religion delivers to us. This is what living with the law, trying to gain acceptance with God, brings us into. A sense of bondage and an impersonal relationship with God motivated by desire for rewards and a fear of punishment and an anxiety about your standing with God. A lot of people, they come to church because they're afraid of what might happen if they don't come to church. And let me just tell you, while I'm glad you've come to church, if that's the reason why you're coming to church, that's a very, very bad motivator. Because you're afraid that God might strike you dead. Because you're afraid that you might not get a bonus at work. Because you're afraid that you might have an accident on the way home. People live underneath what they believe a relationship with God in that way. Thinking that I've got to fulfill all these things or some really bad things are going to happen to me. I'm not going to get blessed. I'm not going to get rewarded unless I do all these things. And so why are they being motivated? They're motivated out of fear because they're afraid of what's going to happen to them and they're motivated by blessing because they really want what they think is coming to them. And how many know that that is unhealthy in relationship? Do you want to be in a marriage relationship like that? Where you're only doing for the other person because you're afraid of what might happen if you don't? Where you're doing for them because you're hoping the response will be that you'll finally get what you want from them? How many know that that is unhealthy? That is very unhealthy. But some people have learned relationships through their religion, and so they live in relationships like that, and they spiritualize those relationships, and they think that they're really good. But it's a prison. It's bondage. It's, it's constantly being in this fear, this anxiety of, did I do enough? Have I been good enough? And by the way, we pass it on to our kids, and we parent our children that way. And they maybe not directly, but sometimes even indirectly, get the message from us that we are only loving them because they're doing good. That we're only accepting them because they're performing well. And that we're only rewarding them because they have done all that they need to do. How many know that we just give to our kids because we love our kids? When I give things to my kids, I don't ever really think, well, they really deserve this. I just often just think, well, I really love them. How many know that's a good way to give? You're not giving because you're constantly like, well, you did good, so you get. You did bad, so you don't get. That's not the way. How many know that that is not the way that God treats us? That is not the way that God, God is good to us all the time. God blesses us all the time. God is always kind to us. God is always, listen, we even justify our wrong behavior sometimes with our children because we think we're justified in treating them wrong because they disobey us. 
So I have a right to yell at them. I have a right to be mean to them. I have a right to be unkind to them because they were unkind to me. Do children have an obligation under the law to obey their parents? Yes. Are they going to do it perfectly? Have you ever met a kid that did that perfectly? And I know before you judge your kids, you were a perfect example of that in your relationship with your parents. How many of you figured figured out that your children are not going to keep the law perfectly just like you didn't keep the law perfectly? But what we definitely don't want to send the message is that love and acceptance is gained through obedience, through their works. The second metaphor that he uses, unlike the first, shows us that the law's true purpose is instructive. It points us beyond itself just as a tutor seeks to prepare children for lives as adults. What are we preparing our children for? To be free. Isn't that really what we're preparing them for? We're not preparing them to live underneath our control for the rest of their lives. We're preparing them for freedom. There's going to be a day where they make their own choices. And by the way, that's healthy, isn't it? And that's right. We're not preparing them to constantly be living underneath our scrutiny, to always be obeying our rules. It is a very unhealthy thing for us to send the message to our kids. How many have the same house rules in your house that your parents had? Anybody? Does that mean that you hate your parents? Does that mean that that you... No, it doesn't mean. It means that you're free now to make your own decisions, and that's okay. And parents understand, and, and especially what we understand in marriage, that husbands leave their fathers and mothers, they cleave to their wives, and families begin their own family, and they have their own subset of rules in the ways that they live their lives, and it's unhealthy for parents to hold on and continue to try to get their kids to live out their rules in their life. Religion forces that on us and keeps us underneath this restrictive way of thinking that you're always meant to be a child. But that's not what the gospel does for us at all. As a matter of fact, this supervisor, this this teacher, is meant to point us to Jesus Christ and then bring us into a relationship that's healthy. In other words, the law points us to a life not of confinement, but of freedom. The law points us... uh, to a life not of confinement, but of freedom. My rules, if they're healthy, are supposed to be to bring my children to a place where they're free and they're able to handle freedom responsibly. How many know that you can abuse freedom? Have you ever done that? Some of you did it last night. You stayed up too late. How many know that's an abuse of freedom? Maturity says, I should not do everything I can do but there are things that I should do that are healthy. And I guide myself through the lens of my freedom with a responsibility and an understanding that not everything I can do, I should do. How many have figured that out as an adult? Not everything you can do, you should do. There's a lot of things you have the ability to do. What do kids do? They wander around doing everything they can do, including putting their fingers in sockets. That's why you have to baby-proof a house, because a kid will walk up and put, I can put my finger in there, and so I should. And if you tell them no, they're more apt to do it. 
If you point at something, don't do that. They're more prone to do that. What does that show? They are not yet able to handle freedom. They're not mature. So what do you do? You put them in bondage. You baby-proof your house. You put all these gates. They're literally bars. You watch kids. They're walking around on leashes. They're locked up in, you know, these really cool, comfy prisons. But that's really what they are. They can't move. We hope they can breathe. We usually cover them up completely. You know, we just, you know that, that's how it, why? Because they're not able. They're going to hurt themselves because they're believing everything with freedom is what I can do, what I can do. What, and then as we get older, what happens? We, have to, we learn the value of asking permission, or we somewhat learn the value of asking permission. Some of us learn that it's easier to say I'm sorry than to ask permission. But we learn the value of authority in our lives as we mature, and so we understand that in our lives there's authority figures that, you know, that we learn the may I, right? May I do this? Am I allowed to? And God gives us figures in our lives and people in our lives to help us navigate freedom that we're not ready for by giving us a person to throw the activity through before we go and do it on ourselves with our own freedom. We have to run it, run it by someone. And how many know sometimes as adults we need somebody like that in our life when we show a lack of maturity in certain areas of our lives or lack of discipline? That's why God gives us the church. Accountability. How many know that we're all growing up still in some way or other? Some of us are growing, hopefully we're growing spiritually. And God gives us spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. Some of your spiritual fathers and mothers may be younger than you in age, but older than you and more mature than you in the Lord. God's not talking about necessarily just the age when he's talking about elders. He's talking about those that are older in Christ, those that have maturity in Christ, teaching those that are immature in Christ. And we learn maturity, but what does the law point us to? Not a life of confinement, but of freedom. Uh, it, it also teaches us about not a life, uh, not a life of, uh, of immaturity. I'm sorry, uh, the, the next point. The, the law points us to um, not a life of impersonal, but a personal relationship with God. Not a life of impersonal, but a personal relationship with God. How many glad that you can have a personal relationship with God because of the gospel? If your relationship with God is corporate, you don't have a healthy relationship with God. If your relationship with God is through some mediation, man-made mediation, you're not having a good normal relationship with God. A good relationship with God, your relationship with God, I don't care how young you are or how old you are, you're supposed to have a personal relationship with God. My desire for my children is that they know God personally. They know God personally. Not that they just know God through me. Not that they just love God through my testimony. They understand God through my experiences. That they have testimonies through my testimony. But that they have their own testimonies. They have their own relationships with God. They have their own experiences with God. They're learning that as they grow. But hopefully today, what we've all understood is God wants us all to have a very personal relationship with Him. Now, if you're only interested in religion and you're not really interested in life change and you want to keep living your life the way that you want to live your life, you're not interested in a personal relationship with God. You would rather that relationship be mediated and impersonal and distant and far away. Some people don't want God close to them. But listen, let me say this. If you, if you truly want to know God, you want to know Him in an intimate, personal way. The more close we get to God, the closer we get to God, 
the more we understand how awesome He is, but also how gracious He is, and that us being in His presence or being close to Him, He is not, he is not a, in this, in this debt, debtor relationship with us. He's not in this relationship to hurt us. As we grow closer to Him, I, I'm with you. I'm intimidated by God. I'm intimidated. I'm in awe of Him. I'm fearful in a sense of not afraid of Him, but respectfully, I look at God and say, He is so great and I'm so little. But what is awesome about God is God says, draw close to me. Get close to me. Somebody who's fake doesn't want you to be close to them. This is how we sense the reality of God, the genuineness, the authenticity of who God is. God is real. He's really all that He says He is. The closer you get to Him, the more you understand that. How many know that the closer you get to some person, the more you understand what their flaws are? The closer you get to God, the more you understand how unflawed He is, how holy He is, how perfect He is. But yet, while that should crush us, it doesn't. While that should, while that should crush us entirely, while He should crush us, why, while He should not allow us into His presence, because of how holy and how great He is, His grace is so amazing that He says, come and get close to me. Draw nigh to me. He says, be close to me. I want to be close to you. He, he, he tells us about this relationship where He's standing at the door of the heart of every believer. And He's knocking and He's wanting us to hear His voice and He's wanting us to open the door and to come in into our hearts, and to fellowship with Him. And, and by the way, that's who Jesus is. Jesus wants to be close to you. He, wants to be, he doesn't want to be some far-off God that you can't touch, that you can't talk to. He wants you to understand that the reason why He took on human flesh, the reason why He became a servant, the reason why He was made like we were made, the reason why He was tempted in all points like we were tempted and like we are tempted even today yet without sin, is so that we could understand Him and so that He could show us and tell us that He understands exactly what we're going through. Aren't you glad you have a God that knows what it's like to have pain and suffering, what it's like to be sick, rejected, what it's like to be falsely accused, what it's like to... to, He knows, listen, He knows in a deeper sense than any of us know because He suffered wrongfully where we suffer because we should suffer. He suffered because He chose to suffer. He came to suffer with us. He came, what does Emmanuel mean? The word, God with us. Because He wants to be with us. doesn't have to be with us. I don't know about you, but that's amazing that God would want to be with me. It's humbling. Listen, I don't know about you, but this morning, I didn't get up and necessarily have my first thought and say, I want to spend time with God. I wish I, wish I did. But a lot of my thinking this morning was very selfish about all the things I had to do in order to get to this point today. And somewhere along the way, I finally stopped and I said, God, I wish that I thought the way that you thought, that the first thought that I had was to be with you. Like your thought was to be with me, because when I woke up this morning, he was with me. And he's always with me. And He never leaves me, and He never forsakes me. And even if I'm irritable, and even if I'm imperfect, even if I'm immature, and even if I act in ways I shouldn't act, He is always there. 
He is always loving, He's always merciful, and He's always forgiving. That is God. The God of religion doesn't paint God that way, but that is the God of the gospel. The God that would give His own Son to die for you so that He could have a relationship with you. Think about all that God gave to know you. And all you had to do is believe. All you had to do is accept it by faith. And then this also points us to, the law teaches us, the law points us to a life of immaturity, not of immaturity, but of maturity of character. What is God wanting to teach us? He's wanting to teach us what his character is. That's what the law teaches us. The law teaches us who God is. God is perfect. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. That's who God is. There is only one God. Isn't that what the law teaches us? If we go through the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other God before me. What does that teach us? There are no other gods but God. He is the God. He is the only God. It's a sin for us to think that there's another God or to behave like there's another God or to live our lives like there are other gods, even if those gods are self-made gods of religion. We should only serve the one and true living God. The law teaches us about who he is. John Stott is worth quoting here. He said this, After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin. It provoked sin. It condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he really underneath is. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do this and still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. One of the greatest faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. That's why he put it all together. I mean, notice when you read the Bible... It's creation, it's fall, it's law. Then it's prophecy, poetry, more prophecy, pointing us to what? The gospel, to Jesus, and then to salvation, to being born again, and then what? To instruction, the result of what happened after Jesus in the book of Acts, the instruction, the epistles, the letters given to the church of how Christians now live, that they've been born again, how they live with people who are lost, and how they live with other believers that are saved. It's all there. Why? It's profitable to us for what? Doctrine and reproof and for correction and for instruction and righteousness, that we may be what? Mature, helping us to grow up in, in the Christian life that he's given us. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. It's only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Many Christians, not only, uh, not all Christians, but many Christians testify that when they first became aware of their need for God, they went through a time of immaturity which they became extremely religious and they diligently sought to mend their ways, to do 
their religious duties to clean up their lives. They made tearful surrenders to God at church services. They gave their lives to Jesus. They asked Him into their hearts. But so often they were really only resolving to be very good, to be very religious, hoping this would procure blessing and favor from God. And at this stage, they tended to have a lot of emotional ups and downs like children, feeling good when they made a spiritual commitment and despondent when they failed to keep a promise to God. They felt in their Christian lives, so they thought, Christian, a very great deal of anxiety. They were, as Paul says here, like children under a schoolmaster, under a tutor, on their way to Christ, but not yet there. That may be where you are today. You may be on your way to Christ, but not yet there. And you may be learning that through the schoolmaster of the law. And the law is keeping you in check, but it's really not because you're finding out that you're not really keeping it, and so you're trying to do good, and, but you're going ups and downs in your, in your spiritual life. You feel good sometimes, you feel bad other times, and you're going up and down and up and down and up and down. And so you're faithful, and then you're not, and you're excited, and then you're not, and you're surrendered, and then you're not, and you're obedient, and then you're not. And your whole life is anxious and fearful, but not faithful. So where does that bring us? It brings us to the place to where we understand that the law teaches us how to love Jesus. The law teaches us how to love Jesus. It enables us to show our love in grateful obedience to Him. Think about it. What does it do for us? What does it show us? It shows us as it points us to maturity and character, but then it, it teaches us. It's like that schoolmaster. How many have ever uh, read about the love languages, the five love languages, Gary Chapman's book? And that book teaches us that people do not always, how many have found out that you tend to love people the way you like to be loved? You tend to love people the way you like to be loved. In other words, if you... If you, like to, if you like love communicated to you a lot, you tend to communicate love a lot to people. If you like gifts, you tend to like to give gifts to people. How many have ever found out that people don't always communicate love the same way you communicate love? Some people like acts of service, and some people like gift giving, and some people like words of affirmation, and some people like physical touch, and Some people like a conglomerate of those or combination of those things. But we tend to love people the way we want to be loved. The schoolmaster of the law teaches us that this is the way God perceives love from us. This is how you love God. How many know in the Christian life you have to learn how to love God? If you've been married any number of years, hopefully you've learned how to love your spouse. But you didn't know from day one how to love them. You thought you did. You thought it was like feelings and emotions and those were just going to carry you through. How many figured out that feelings and emotions are not going to carry you through? They're fun. They're exciting for a time. But when the rubber meets the road, when hardness comes, when difficulty comes, you have to learn how to love your spouse in the way that they need to be loved. You need to figure out what speaks love to them. How do they perceive love? But sometimes we're really immature and we force on the other person. We try to say, this is how I'm loving you. Feel my love. And, you know, we're trying to, don't you see how much I love you? 
And you'll hear the husband say, I work all day long, and I slave, and I blah, blah, blah. And he goes on about all the things he does for his wife. And you know what she says? I just want to hear you say, I love you. Well, you should know that I love you from all the stuff I do. You know why? Because he likes to be loved by people doing things for him. And so he thinks his wife should be loved, want to love, be loved the same way. But all she wants to hear from you is, I love you. She wants to hear it often, regular, from your heart. And in a way that shows that you're willing to put down the tough guy act and love her the way she needs love. It's true. You know, God is teaching us through the law how to love him. You can't love God the way you want to love God. You have to love God the way he teaches you. What did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. This is an important note. God never said, if you love me, or if you keep my commandments, I'll love you. He never said that. He never said, if you keep my commandments, I'll love you. No, he says, I already love you. If you want to love me, keep my commandments. I love you. I love you, and I know how to love you. Doesn't God know how to love us? He knows how to love us. Hasn't God loved us perfectly? We didn't always understand God's love. Sometimes God was loving us, but we thought bad things were happening in our lives, but it was just God loving us. We thought difficulty was in our lives, but it's just God loving us. Things were not going the way we had planned, but it was just God loving us. God knows how to love you and I perfectly. We don't understand how to love him. And he's trying to teach us that. And that lastly, that brings us uh, to this last point about God. When we grasp salvation by promise, our hearts are filled with gratitude and a desire to please and be like our Savior. The one, the way to do that, the one that loved us, the way to do that is through obeying the law. This is the practicality of the law. The practicality of the law. How does it practically look? What does it practically look like in our lives? When we grasp salvation by promise, our hearts are filled with gratitude and a desire to please and be like our Savior. And the way to do that is through obeying the law. Why is he teaching us this? Well, the law allows us to love Jesus and enables us to show our love in grateful obedience. It teaches us how to love him. It shows us who we are. It points us to see Christ as he really is, as our Savior, the one who obeyed the law on our behalf that we could not keep ourselves and then died in our place that we might receive the promised blessing. Law and grace work together in the Christian salvation. Many people want a sense of joy and acceptance, but they don't want to admit the seriousness of their sin. They will not listen to the law's searching and painful analysis of their lives and their hearts, but unless... We see how helpless and profoundly sinful we are. The message of salvation will not be exhilarating and liberating. Unless we know how big our debt is, we cannot have any idea of how great Christ's payment was. Until sin be bitter, Christ cannot be sweet. And that's what the law teaches us. The law teaches us about the bitterness of our sin so that we can learn about the sweetness of Jesus. I hope you know Christ today. I hope that you understand that he came and fulfilled the law and you could not keep it. You could not do it. 
But what does that mean for us now that we're believers? We don't go back to the law to make ourselves acceptable or pleasing to God. But we live in light of who we are in Jesus. Now we've received Christ. And now we need to walk in the newness of the life that he's given us. The, the, the life that we've been given is the life of Jesus Christ. We go back to Galatians 2, what he said, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Who's living in you? Your will or his? Is it Jesus living through you or is it you living your own life through religion or whatever way you're choosing to live? If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.